Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. If you've been joining us these last few months, you know we've been exploring the notion of great escapes, of going on the lam, of road trips, generously interpreted in American criminal history. But just as it takes both flour and fat to make a roux, pardon my Louisiana metaphor here, technically, you're not exactly a fugitive unless you're fleeing from something, from someone, someone whose job it is, no, whose calling to catch you. As we near the end of our summer series, today on Crime Capsule, we're here to talk about the other side of that coin, to talk about the person at the end of the road, the place where the needle hits empty, where your luck runs out. And in the annals of American criminal history, there may be no one more feared as a lawman than the legendary Bass Reeves of Oklahoma. We are delighted to have Janita Mullins, author of Oklahoma Originals, Early Heroes, Heroines, Villains, and Vixens with us today. As well as being an expert on Oklahoma history generally, she's an expert on Bass, who, if you know, you know. And if you don't know, well, buckle up. Janita, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. We are so delighted to have you. Thank you, Benjamin. I appreciate the invitation. So you are a native of Oklahoma, born and raised, and you have been working in research and public history for almost your entire career, haven't you? What what led you down this path? Well, I've always enjoyed history. I'm a proud Oklahoman, so I think Oklahoma has a very unique history. And I really didn't get started in writing about it until I um, went to work for a museum in my hometown of Muskogee. And they um, had some wonderful history on display there, including uh, information on Bass Reeves. And that led me to starting a column in the Muskogee Phoenix newspaper, which I've been doing for about 20 years now. And that has led to a lot of research. You write a weekly column on history, you've got to do a great amount of research. So that and then in turn led to me compiling some of that research into some books that I've been uh, fortunate enough to get published. What was it like when you first set out to persuade those editors to say, hey, Let's let's do this column. Let's do this thing. Was it, was there any um, friction there, or were they pretty open to the idea? Actually, it was just the opposite. They had always run a history column, and had had various writers through the years. And so, when uh, the previous uh, columnist passed away, they actually let it set for the column. Kind of went away for about a year out of respect to him, but. Just about the time I started working at the museum, they approached the museum, the editor, and said, do you have anybody on staff who can write a column on history? And I had a background in writing. So everybody (laughs) pointed at me, and that's when I uh, took over the column uh, for the Muskogee Phoenix. So uh, I was approached by them and was happy to take it on because I had not had an opportunity to do as much writing as I would have liked in the Oh, for about the last eight or nine years, and I was glad to jump back into it. 
you know, there, there's a string of words in the English language that is very rarely pronounced, which is, we need a writer. Um, <laughs> you know? And so when that string of words is uttered in that order, mo- many of our hearts just sort of like leap up in, oh, exactly. in kind of gratitude. Like we, it's we a unicorn, right? It's a unicorn. Me, 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 pick yeah, me. <laughs> absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, Oklahoma Originals came out in 2019, and it was your... Uh, fourth book, I believe, uh, in, in uh, nonfiction. You've written some fiction as well, which we'll get to. Um, for listeners who may not be aware of your other work, uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of your previous books in nonfiction? The History Press has also published a book of mine called The Jefferson Highway in Oklahoma. It is about a, probably the oldest road in Oklahoma. It runs from Missouri to Texas and has beautiful history prior to being a highway. And so I had done a lot of research on that. And that was the first book that History Press did for me. I had published two other uh, collections of some some of my columns from the Phoenix, uh, self-published those. Uh, They are titled Glimpses of Our Past and Life Along the Rivers. So that's my um, main um, nonfiction works that I've done. I did just publish another one this year. It's called Muskogee, the Indian Capital. And it's again an, a collection of my uh, oh, Congratulations. Articles. Thank you. I wanted to get it out this year because this year is Muskogee's 150th birthday. So we've been celebrating um, 150 years of existence all, all uh, this year in Muskogee. So I wanted this book to come out in our 150th year. That must have been a real treat to get to research and to write. What joy. Yes. Yes, it was a lot of fun. And uh, Muskogee, like Oklahoma, has some really interesting history. So there were a lot of good topics to cover. I imagine you are often asked when you uh, do speaking engagements and so forth how the research and the writing of history informs your work as a novelist. But Janita, I would actually like to flip the coin onto its other side and ask you, how does the writing of novels inform your writing of uh, history works? I think I am... sort of person who is always looking for a good story. History can be very boring if it's just a matter of dates and battles and things of that nature. So I go digging for people's stories. And I think if you can find those stories, then you can make history very interesting. So, of course, a novel is just an extended story. And if you can find a great story, you you have both a good uh, nonfiction book and a good fiction book. And that's been always my focus is finding the stories. And people do compliment me on that. Well, you make history much more interesting than when I was in school. And I say, well, it's about people to me. It's about their stories. That brings us nicely to Oklahoma Originals in that it is a compendium of over 80 profiles of prominent, interesting, mysterious, enigmatic uh, Oklahomans who really run the spectrum from the folks who gave a great deal of um, worth and contribution to the state's history and who really sought to build the state's history up, and then the other kind of folks who would (laughs) much rather have spent their lives uh, conducting train robberies, shall we say. Uh Um, How did you... 
I, I really enjoyed getting to know the people in your book. They are so incredibly colorful, as we say down here in Louisiana. How did you approach the collecting and the organizing of the men and women in this book? Well, as I said, I like to focus on people. So I just, first of all, went back through my columns, all a thousand or more of them, and picked out all of the biographies that I'd done. Of course, a very short brief biographies, but I picked out all of those. Then I had to go through and narrow it down to just about 80. And um, since my focus writing for a local newspaper is local history, I realized if I wanted a broader audience, I needed to go out beyond just Muskogee or Northeast Oklahoma and do the whole state. So after I had uh, picked several from the Muskogee or Northeast Oklahoma area, then I went to the larger state history and started trying to find some men and women who uh, contributed to Oklahoma's history. I very definitely wanted to include uh, all kinds of people. I wanted men and women. I wanted uh, whites and blacks and Native Americans and, and everyone included in this because that's all a part of what Oklahoma history is. I thought the way that you organized it was really useful and that you have sort of the explorers and you have the pioneers and you have the merchants and each chapter is about kind of a, a category of people under which a dozen or so names might might fall. And of course, I was particularly glad to see um, your mention of there are so many women in this book. And I was so glad to see the bandit queen, Belle Starr, make her appearance, which is always a joy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You can't hardly do a book about Oklahoma without including Belle Starr. She is such a larger-than-life character, although most of what you hear about her is completely untrue. She has so many myths that surround her that sometimes it can be a little hard to extract the actual facts about her life. Well, we are delighted to be able to spend a little time uh, diving into this wonderful book and as you know, we here at Crime Capsule are doing a series on road trips, on great escapes, on fugitives from the law. And Janita, we thought it would not be right to undertake this series without talking at least a little bit about the law enforcement side of things, the men and women who bring those great escapes to an end. After all, for every mouse on the loose, there has to be a cat, right? Absolutely. And in Bass Reeves, we have we have one of the baddest cats of all time. <laughs> I, mean, I, I couldn't help but think as I was reading about Bass, Janita, that that he really is the John Shaft of the 19th century Wild West. I mean, there's just no one who is slicker than he is, That's and right. he always gets his man. So I'm. I'm so excited to get to 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 talk about Bass today, uh, but before we get to to him, we actually need to set the stage a little bit because I think maybe some of our listeners who have not recently read much up on Oklahoma history, you may have forgotten or or not encountered what an incredibly uh, tense place it was in the mid-1800s and how it was at the center of so many different political currents. It's not a flyover state in that, in that period of time at all. It's actually sort of at the locus of, of, the, of the America that it's being formed at the time. So I'd love to be able to spend a little time uh, there before we get to Bass. Um, 
at the time of which you're writing, which is sort of the mid-1800s, mid to late 1800s, Oklahoma was still a territory with Native American nations such as uh, the Osage, the Muscogee, and the Creek still holding very considerable portions of land. So help us to understand the political tensions of this era uh, where your book is set and the tensions in particular surrounding expansion and statehood. This was a major controversy that raged in the Twin Territories, as they were called at that time. Um, the Native Americans had their own independent nations. They never truly organized a territory with, say, a government, a constitution, a governor, any of that. They were five nations, primarily. And then you had a section of land in the middle of Indian Territory, as it was called, that had never been settled by any native tribe, and so the government finally opened that up to non-Indian settlement and then gave them territorial status a year later. So we had two different territories fighting for whether or not we go into the Union as a single state or as two states. This went on and on and on. It couldn't get settled very quickly. There were all these different interests. The railroads had an interest. The cattlemen associations had an interest. The Native Americans had an interest. And uh, in the midst of all of this going on, you had all these different jurisdictional issues with each of the tribes having their own government and their own police force. And in this, there was sort of a vacuum of um, jurisdictional question mark where people who were not a member of a tribe could slip into a tribal area and the tribe themselves, their police force, couldn't make an arrest of that individual. So it became this massive hideout for uh, criminals who would commit a crime in Texas, say, or Arkansas, and then slip into the territory or the nations, as it was sometimes referred to, and could hide out there pretty much uh, free from getting arrested because the Native people couldn't do so because if they were white or black, not a tribal member, they were helpless to do anything about them. And it became this really terrible place uh, where criminals could easily hide out and could avoid arrest. So the Native Americans were then fighting that and eventually had to give up and say, okay, we need the federal government to come in here and help us clean this out because it's just gotten so bad. We've been um, overrun by the criminal element. I like to say that um, in Oklahoma, you have all of the stereotypes of the Old West, cowboys and Indians, cattle drives and shoot shootouts in the street and, and all the things that Hollywood would have made a movie about. Uh, and it all happened in Oklahoma. Let me ask you about this this ter territorial aspect. Y you say that there's an, a sort of parcel of land or an, a region in which no one had ever settled. That there's a sort of, it sounds like to me like a no man's land almost. You know, it, was this because there was a particularly inhospitable element to it? Was there something in the elements or the terrain that made sort of farming or uh, herding cattle, you know, that sort of thing, just particularly tricky? Or had it been contested by these various nations over the years and there was just no easy peace surrounding it? What was the issue surrounding this sort of uninhabited or this unclaimed zone? Well, it... 
technically wasn't unclaimed because the Plains tribesmen always had hunted through this area, so it wasn't desert or anything like that. And it basically sat right in the center uh, of the what is the state today where Oklahoma City is located. The tribes, the five tribes of the southeast United States had been given basically the entire state of what is today Oklahoma, except for the panhandle at the time that the Indians from the southeast were removed to the Indian Territory, the Panhandle belonged to Texas. But after the Civil War, because the tribes had signed alliance treaties with the Confederacy, the government took back some of the land that it had given to these five nations and had begun to, after the war, settle tribes, other tribes on that land that they had taken back. But there was a section in the center of the state that had not been given to any of the other tribes that were being moved into the territory. So that re was recalled the unassigned land because it had never been assigned to a new tribe. And there was this argument back and forth about should it be opened for non-Indian settlement or not. The Indians, of course, were very adamantly opposed to it, except for a few of them. And um, so they resisted and resisted and resisted that opening of the land for uh, a min good many years uh, until finally they just had enough pressure brought against them that they uh, had to concede. And then the government paid the Muscogee tribe for the land because they had agreed to pay them this money for this land that they were taking back and had just never done so. So finally the government said, okay, we'll pay you for this land and then we can do whatever we want with it. And so at that point in time in 1889, they opened it to a land run, which is very unique to Oklahoma history. I don't know of another state that got settled uh, with see. a land run where you shoot off a cannon and thousands of people race to get a claim. Wow. And that is what happened in 1889 to this unassigned territory. That may have to be the subject of your next book. Yes, because <laughs> there are probably some really interesting characters who made that land run. <laughs> you you wish you would have been there to see it. There yes. <laughs> is, uh, that sounds like an amazing, amazing spectacle. Well, let's get back to the, to the sort of the law and justice angle here. I mean, you write that uh, the Twin Territories at the time were quite nearly just lawless. They were unregulated and they were the absence of um, sort of a, a central body of administering justice where the American jurisdiction ended just did not help any of the internal uh, turmoil that was going through with respect to fugitives and outlaws um, at all. And so I'm, I'm curious Two questions for you, uh, Janita. One, what were the main crimes that were taking place in and around the territories at this time? You described cattle rustling and bootlegging, but I'm sure there were many, many more. Um, so I'm curious about kind of what what was comprising most of the criminal activity at this time. And secondly, who who was trying to maintain order or what, what institutions were there at all in order to try to bring some accountability to, you know, to rustle the rustlers, right? Uh, well, of course, train robberies were a major problem in the territory. When the tribes had signed their new treaties with the federal government for following the Civil War, they had to make certain concessions, and one of them had been to allow trains, railroads to build through. With the Texas cattle market being what it was right at the end of the war, we had all the cattle drives, as you know, 
And the, the railroads very much had an interest to come out of the Midwest, out of Missouri and Kansas, and get down to Texas to, to claim that cattle market. Um, but they were passing through a very sparsely settled land, so it was very easy for them to be robbed. The fa- first train to, to build through Indian Territory was the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas. It was called the Katy for short. The Katy became the most robbed train in America, the most robbed railroad, because it came through the Indian nations. <laughs> and at every switch, at every oh, no. gap, at every little um, stopping place, that there were robberies taking place. And so the railroads, of course, had a great interest in seeing some kind of federal presence in the territory to curb all of this because they were uh, desperate to curb this um, train robberies that were taking place. They, in fact, would hire agents to ride the rails just to try to to keep it on, a lid on it. Uh, murder was not huge, but there was some of that going on. Um, when you don't have much law enforcement that you can turn to, to settle dispute, a lot of people just pull out a gun and settle it themselves. And so you had a lot of that going on. Um, the, the tribes had their own police forces, um, and, and the tribal police is usually called the light horse. We still have light horsemen today. Uh, the Cherokee um, were called their law enforcement the marshals, uh, similar to the, the U.S. Marshal Service. But as I had said before, they could only arrest their own tribal members. So they couldn't uh, arrest um, Bell Star, for example. She wasn't a member of the tribe. Uh, and, and people who would slip into the territory after having committed a bank robbery or a chain robbery or maybe a stagecoach robbery and then to hide out in the cave or in the hills and they they couldn't launch, dislodge them and couldn't make an arrest. So even though they had effective police forces for their own people, uh, they were being overrun by um, individuals who didn't belong to the tribe and therefore was slipped into this jurisdictional crack. Uh, where no one could arrest them. I mean, you know, we often think of the desert southwest or parts of Texas as, you know, the area where the Wild West is most clearly visible. But your description of of these years from about 1850 to 1880, it makes it so, it makes it come so alive when you realize, I mean, that you paint this portrait of the Katy, the train sort of passing through this completely darkened landscape. There's nobody around for miles. It comes to a switching station. You know, there's somebody in a mask and a hat, you know, waiting to throw the switch to send it off to the other track. You know, the the conductor and the engineer, they've come to expect this because they know they're not going to get any help. There's no one coming, right? And it's just sort of this sense of you're you're throwing your whole life and fortune to almost a chance and to and to to fate, you know, by taking one of these trips. I mean, that's the Wild West right there. That it's is the amazing. Wild West. That is the Wild West. And and some authors, particularly um Art Burton, who is the biographer of Bass Reeves, he has called um Oklahoma or the territories the epicenter of the Wild West. So much of what Hollywood show is Tombstone or El Paso or Deadwood that all happened in Oklahoma. Most of the stories, you know, that they would um, turn into movies, they actually took place in Oklahoma. Now, what's interesting is that you write that there were, despite this turmoil, despite this lawlessness, despite this chaos of, of a justice uh, system, 
there were individuals who over time did seek to establish institutions really from scratch. Now, you write about uh, Frank Canton. You write about William Grimes, Judge Isaac Parker in Fort Smith, who probably deserves his own book as well. Uh Uh, And folks like Samuel Sick. Yeah, he was he was he's a really interesting one. Uh, and Samuel Sixkiller, who has the most amazing name I think yes, I've ever read. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what was what was it like for these early judges, officers of the peace, federal marshals coming into the territories trying to create something from nothing? Well, of course, Isaac Parker um, had this huge task when he was appointed to the bench at the Fort Smith Court because at that time, he was tasked with cleaning up the territories, and uh, it was huge. So he began to hire marshals. He particularly wanted African-American and Native American marshals, which was different from what you would have found in just about any other court. So Parker was very unique in that respect. He hired a lot of blacks and a lot of Indians to go into the territory. He believed that the Native people, the predominant uh, people in the territory, were, were more trusting of their own people, Indians, or even of blacks than they were of white officers and would cooperate more fully with those people of color. Then you had someone like Sam Sixkiller, who was Cherokee, um, and he was tasked, of course, with trying to clean everything up even before Isaac Parker was starting to get involved. Um, He was captain of the Indian police. He worked in Muskogee, unfortunately died himself being shot while he was buying presents for his children on Christmas Eve. His story is just an amazing story, but um, he was so well-respected that uh, when he passed away, his funeral was largely attended. And um, he was credited with really trying to get a lid on the bootlegging, which was really bad. Uh, I claim, and I think I can support it, that the term bootlegging actually began in Indian Territory because everybody was trying to smuggle uh, whiskey or something into the territories because they were dry. They were temperance territories. They all had temperance laws. And so they would... Um, put the alcohol in slim little flask, and then they would slip that flask into the leg of their boots. So as they were coming in, they could sneak that uh, whiskey in, and bootlegging became the term uh, that there was used about smuggling uh, illegal ac- alcohol, and I'm pretty sure it started right here in Indian Territory. With So that was a major problem for them. I have often said that if um, the temperance movement and the prohibition amendment, if those folks had looked at Indian Territory and saw how impossible it was to regulate and enforce temperance. They probably would not have ever passed the 19th Amendment because it just was not enforceable. And it wasn't enforceable in Indian Territory. There was just too much liquor flowing. So a lot of the crime was all related to that flow of alcohol. We have had several guests on over the past several months who have given us an, a view on to prohibition in other southern states. And uh, the consensus absolutely is it was basically unenforceable anywhere you went, which is exactly. not that surprising if you, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you think about it. So I was struck by when you write about, say, Judge Isaac Parker. I mean, he is 
for, for our listeners who may not uh, recall, Fort Smith is actually on the border between Oklahoma and Arkansas. And at that time, it was sort of, it was the seat of justice for the territories. And it was, it was like you had the seat of justice on the eastern border, the eastern side of the territories. And Judge Parker was deputizing marshals going westward into the territories, right? But but he held court uh, back at Fort at, at Fort Smith, which technically is is actually an Arkansas city today, isn't it? Yes, it is. Although I I believe it actually should be in Oklahoma. If you if you visit the Fort Smith historic site, you will see that all of the history that they interpret there is Indian Territory history. They have very little about Arkansas in Fort Smith because they were Fort Smith was so focused on Indian Territory and uh, law enforcement here, uh, even from when the fort, the actual first fort was established in 1817, it was about uh, trying to keep the peace in Indian Territory. So from the very beginning, from the get-go of Fort Smith's existence, it was all about trying to keep peace in the Indian Territory. And the marshals headed west, and they had to make a rest, and then bring all those prisoners back to Fort Smith. That must have been a journey, bringing these guys back, you know, cuffed and bound yes. over hundreds of miles. Yes, <laughs> you know, absolutely. And they don't want to go. Right. <laughs> well, what was really interesting about your account of these early lawmen, though, Janita, is a really intriguing uh, sort of angle here is that you write that many of them, many of these deputized marshals, such as Frank Canton, had actually started out as criminals. They had actually started out on the other side of the law, and they had had these kinds of wake-up calls or come-to-Jesus moments or had realized they were in over their heads, and they had turned from their criminal ways and decided to uh, to put on the badge. I-, I thought this was really fascinating because that's not a narrative that you hear quite as often in the modern age, but it seemed to be very common in your account. Yes, it was very common. I mean, you don't think of Wyatt Earp as being someone who was stealing horses in the Cherokee Nation, but there is uh, evidence that he was. And so uh, Wyatt Earp, who's very famous, a marshal, started out as a criminal, as a a thief, um, stealing horses. And uh, a lot of the other marshals were that as well. A good number of these men, remember, they would have been probably ex-soldiers from the Civil War. And when um, I've heard some people, speakers say that the Civil War is really what gave rise to the Wild West because you had all of these young men coming out of the war, some of them probably uh, suffering from uh, PTSD and other things of that nature. They all know how to handle a gun. They all own a gun. And they're probably um, a little jaded, a little cynical, uh, they've seen death, they've taken lives, and, and they're a little bit hard. And so coming out of that uh, environment, it, they were probably wandering around trying to find their way for, for a good number of years, and some of them resorted to um, making a living, uh, stealing other people's money or other people's property. And then they got enough far enough away from the war and all of that horror that yeah, they did have that come to Jesus moment when they said, this is not how I want to spend the rest of my life. Looking over my shoulder, being pursued by other lawmen, I'm going to straighten out and, and try to do better. And so some of them, they had the, the gun skills. They had the ability to shoot if they had to. And so they were individuals that 
the, the citizens were looking to uh, to have the courage to stand up to the criminal element. And so they turned to some of these uh, men who were looking for a change and wanted to do something else with their lives. Really is fascinating. I was I was so struck by that aspect. You know, there's one more question I have for you before we turn to to the baddest cat himself, uh, Bass Reeves. But I, I wanted to ask you. You get the sense in your account of Oklahoma in this period of the frontier very clearly, and and I think what struck me about that uh, the visibility or the the sense of the frontier was that so many of the men you describe these these men who um, ended up becoming law enforcement officers and so forth nearly all of them moved there from outside. They came from Texas. They came from Nebraska. They came from Kentucky. There's this sense of being on the leading edge of something, of entering into the unknown that appeals, I think, yes, to our sense of adventure and sort of, you know, excitement and so forth. But actually, it also speaks directly to the way in which people at that time saw opportunity in the the far sort of the far unknown of the American territories it just it struck me that that nearly every law enforcement officer that you write about was not at all from Oklahoma you know they all came in from outside and they were moving there in search of something exactly of course uh, Oklahoma in a way became the last frontier much of the uh, west had been settled because the, the Homestead Act and the government had really, due to the request of the railroads, had really tried to push people into settling the West. But Oklahoma was Indian territory, and non-Indians weren't allowed in for the longest time. And so the, the um, it was the last frontier. It was the last opportunity to go in and, and, and claim some land and start over. A lot of uh, individuals who, who made the land runs who came to Oklahoma uh, to, to try to seek some of this land that the government was giving away were coming out of the South and coming out of the, the shambles that the Civil War had left the South. And they were looking for a new opportunity. And it was opportunity for blacks as well as whites. There was a huge influx of African-Americans, freedmen, who um, couldn't survive in the South because of everything that was uh, being felt and uh, taken care of there. And so they saw Oklahoma as this land of opportunity, and it brought a lot of um, a lot of good people, as well as the criminal element, a lot of people just looking for a chance to start over. And Oklahoma offered that, almost uh, one of the last places that you could go uh, to, to get some land and start over and, and make a different life for yourself and your family. Well, that brings us naturally to the baddest cat in the West. Uh, what do we know? I'm so I'm so excited. What what do we know about Bass Reeves' early life and his family? Was Bass born a slave, or was he born free and then captured or sold into slavery? He was born a slave. He was born in Crawford County, Arkansas. His beginning is very sketchy. Um, even from interviews with Bass himself, he spoke very little about his life as a slave. 
um, some family lore has been passed down, and his uh, he had a great nephew who wrote a book about him that mostly centers on the stories that family told about him. But um, yeah, we don't know a lot about his beginning years, but he was born into slavery. His mother was um, a slave. Her name was Perley. There's some speculation that maybe his father was white, maybe the master at the plantation. Um, Bass never said, so we don't really know who his father was. Uh, that situation was not unique uh, back in the day. Uh, the family, the Reeves family that owned the plantation, moved to Texas when Bass was about eight. We know that. And um, he was assigned to work with the blacksmith on the plantation. So he learned how to handle horses and he learned how to handle guns. And those two things, of course, would uh, serve him very well later on in his law enforcement career. So what do we know about his escape? You write that he um, made a sort of sudden flight north into the Creek Nation. Uh, Do we know much about what that transit from Texas into Oklahoma looked like? We don't. And again, this is something that Bass did not discuss much. And so what we know of it, we've gathered from children's stories and different things that maybe he told them and they related later to biographers. Um, Apparently, he had been made a, uh, what they would have called a body servant for the son of the plantation owner, a man named George Reeves. George joined the Texas Cavalry at the uh, outset of the Civil War uh, on the Confederate side. I have recently read, and and this was something that I had missed uh, earlier, in that George Reeves, as a part of the Texas Cavalry, had come into Indian Territory very early in 1861 to um, try to bring all of the tribes into the Confederate camp. And the Texas Cavalry was sort of muscling everybody into the Confederate camp. So Bass Reeves likely would have been with George. And so it may not be that he escaped from Texas into the Indian Territory. He may have already been in the Indian Territory. And he just did like a lot of outlaws did. He went out and hid in the hills and uh, managed to elude capture. The Muskogee Nation was unique. And Muskogee, I use Muskogee interchangeably with Creek. Um, it's a term that um, the, the nation today is preferring. That's their native word for their name. Uh, Muskogee tribe had a policy of not allowing bounty hunters into their nation to capture slaves. So it's not well documented, but it's, it's very clear that the Muskogee Nation, at least, was a part of the Underground Railroad. And there were probably a number of different slaves who managed to get into the Muskogee Nation and avoid capture. That's perhaps new about this, at uh, because those stories get told through the plantations. Everybody knows how, where you run if you're going to run. And so he probably knew Muskogee Nation is a possibility as a place where you can you can, if you can get to it, you can hide out in it. And so he made his move very early in the Civil War. What he did while he was living in, in the nations during the Civil War, we're not exactly sure. Again, he's very silent about that in his interviews. Some have suggested he was a scout for the, for the uh, Union. Some suggested he may have even fought for the Union. Uh, we just really don't have a lot of details on that. But he would have spent those years during the war somewhere 
likely in the Muscogee Nation or somewhere in the Indian Nations. He was a bright young man. He was probably about 23 years old at this time. He learned the Muscogee language, and the Muscogee language is a language that is spoken in some iteration uh, by four of the five tribes. So being um, proficient in Muscogee meant you could probably talk to a Chickasaw or a Choctaw or a Seminole, as well as a Muscogee member. So it gave him an advantage to know that language, and he used that skill later on uh, in his law enforcement career. It, it really is fascinating to think about him sort of hiding out, picking up these skills, uh, you know, sort of laying low, keeping his head down, but also with a view towards... Uh, he, he knew the war would have to end, and he knew that he would have to make his own his own way. And so he's uh, he's sharpening his sensibility right throughout all this time, not not necessarily knowing what's coming next, but you know amassing amassing kind of a body of knowledge and expertise. And I was really struck by this sort of portrait that you paint of of him doing that in and around this, as we were talking earlier, this lawless region, right? And so there's this kind of tension, isn't there? You you have the flip the flip side of the lawlessness in the territories where, you know, criminals and outlaws can go in and not be arrested. Well, if you are a fugitive from slavery, if you are an escaped slave like Bass Reeves, uh, you are also subject to the kind of immunity, right? <laughs> uh, that these erstwhile criminals and outlaws are also subject to, and you're kind of intermingling with a crowd that really teaches you to toughen up and to keep your wits about you. And it, it just, what a, what an incubator, right? I mean, what, a, what a time and a place in order to, to hone one's uh, sort of faculties as a law enforcement officer. I was just enthralled by imagining what, who Bass was meeting during this time and who he was rubbing shoulders with. And, you know, I don't, I doubt he was much of a drinking man or a gambling man, but if, if he walked into a saloon, right, not, uh, you know, there weren't saloons in quite that same way, but if he, if, but you know what I mean? There's a sense of who was he encountering? And it was very definitely the kind of folks who were also in flight from some aspect of persecution uh, that, that would have just really changed changed the person's outlook. So it's just fascinating, absolutely fascinating, Janita. And of course, when he's, when he's trying to lay low, he's learning. He's learning all of the hideouts. He's learning where those caves are uh, in the hills. He's learning where the hollows are that you can uh, slip down there to a stream and, and, uh, and camp for a while and no one will come by and see you. And during this time period, um, actually, Indian territory was kind of emptied out, if you want to know the truth of it. Um, the Indians were forced to choose sides, one side or the other. And so those who supported the Union, a lot of them fled to Kansas. And those who supported the Confederacy fled to Texas. And they literally abandoned Indian territory. So what you had were soldiers and any um, escaped slaves or maybe a few fugitives from uh, the surrounding states, but it would have been a wide open territory very much uh, during the war years. So you write that his career in law enforcement really kind of comes into focus, officially begins around 1875 when Judge Isaac Parker, who we mentioned over in Fort Smith, uh, begins to deputize marshals across the territories. Now, I want to ask you about that, but right before I do, I want to ask you what what do we know, if anything, about the period between 
1865, the end of the Civil War, emancipation, etc., and 1875, when Bass becomes a federal marshal. So the, the, does he come out of hiding in 1865 when bounty hunters or uh, you know folks retrieving escaped slaves are no longer able to do that kind of work given the given the end of the war what what do we know about that that moment in his life we don't know a great deal but we do know that he did leave indian territory and he settled in um, van buren arkansas he bought a farm there he married he brought his mother and a sister from Texas, so apparently he had been able to reconnect with them, which I'm sure he hadn't been able to during the war years, but he was able to find them and bring them to live uh, there in, in Arkansas, which is where he'd started his life and probably had family, other family in that area. He um, owned a farm, built a beautiful house from all accounts. It was a very nice house, uh, raced horses, had a passel of kids, I think 11 total uh, children. So he was a family man for sure. Wow. <laughs> and um, yeah. Yeah. He, he actually started serving as a scout for the marshals that um, were going into Indian Territory trying to make those arrests. He knew, the, he knew the land, and so he would be a scout for them, and that's kind of how he worked his way into being considered for the job of marshal. 1875, Judge Isaac Parker says, we got to get a handle on this. And so he starts handing out badges, right? Um, Bass, Bass gets a badge. And I was curious, does Parker approach Bass or does Bass approach Parker? I don't know the answer to that. I am not sure. He may have been recommended to Parker by some of the men that he had served. By uh, this time, he was being used as a posse man which is um, usually a civilian that gets temporarily deputized uh, to go out and, and help with the, making an arrest or something. And so he was scout and posse man. He had proven his abilities. And so I would, I would guess that someone that he had worked with had said to Parker, this is a man you want, might want to consider. He's, he's got some good skills and, and he can do the job. Now, this is the fun part. It's all fun, <laughs> but this is the really fun part. Tell us how good of a marshal he was. Tell us just how bad this cat was, <laughs> Janita. Well, of course, he was a man who managed to serve for 32 years in the marshal service as a deputy. And at, in this time period, it typically a marshal lasted about five years. Either they were killed, uh, wounded badly enough that they couldn't continue, or they just burned out and said, I can't do this anymore. So five years was the typical length of a marshal's service at this time. For someone to last for 32 years, you've got to be tough, and you've got to be smart, and you've got to be fast with your gun, and you have to be committed to the idea of justice. And that, I think, is key to Bass, is that he just truly believed in the justice system. He shared that with, with Isaac Parker, and they actually became good friends uh, because they both had a strong sense of justice and of wanting to see the law served. And so that kept him committed and kept him going back into the territories. Um, year after year after year, he made nearly... 3,000 arrests in that time period, plus serving subpoenas for people who were being called to testify. He did that as well. So uh, he was just a prolific 
um, marshal and did a massive amount of work in cleaning up Indian territory. I did the math, <laughs> just out of curiosity. I couldn't resist. 32 years in the service from 1875 to 1907, nearly 3,000 arrests. You run the numbers, and that is an arrest every 3.89 days. That's an arrest <laughs> nearly every four days. He's bringing somebody <laughs> in. That's 3,000 perps who are trying to get away with their crimes or their cattle rustling, their bootlegging, you know, to make their own great escapes. And he shut every last one of them down. I mean, this guy did not play around. <laughs> He did not. And of course, the remarkable thing about it, and we need to mention it, is in all of this, he was not educated. Uh, to our knowledge, he could very do very little in the way of reading or writing. If he needed to write a letter, he had to have someone write it for him. Um, he would memorize the warrants that he carried just from, from looking at the picture or, or the name, and, and he could pick them out of the sheaf of warrants that he had because he had such a sharp mind, and he did all of this with that handicap of being illiterate. And so I think he probably taught himself a little bit to, to read or write. He was just too smart to not to do that. But for basically, he had no formal education. So he gets um, uh, the, the, the mode of operation was for a marshal to pick up his sheaf of warrants at the courthouse uh, to hire a cook and a guard and maybe a posse man or two to head it into the, the territories with a wagon and some chains so that he could abound, bind his prisoners and, and then he would go and serve as many of these warrants as he could and then haul them back to Fort Smith. So after he had uh, arrested them, sometimes shot them, in the course of arresting them, then he had to bring them back to Fort Smith, which in itself was a major <laughs> undertaking. So uh, you didn't just go out and shoot a guy and take him over to a few blocks away to the jail. You had a 100 to 300-mile trip to get him back to the courthouse to Fort Smith. Which, when you look at that statistic of an arrest nearly every four days, I mean, you just think this guy's on the road. You know, he's just like a like a, a one-man kind of, you know, caravan, just like it's extraordinary, that, that, that level of, of activity. Now, now, let me ask you this. Um, how fast on the trigger, on the draw, was Bass Reeves? You know, I don't know that anyone ever timed it, but... <laughs> He, uh, they say no one, <laughs> no one ever could outdraw him. That's for sure. And uh, he had to, on occasion, whip that gun out pretty fast. Uh, stories are that he was ambidextrous and he would carry a gun on both hips. Sometimes he had a gun stuck in uh, his waistband at the small of his back. But his favorite weapon was the Winchester rifle, which he would carry in a scabbard uh, on his sorrel horse. Uh, but he was he was fast, and um, he was fast with his hands. He had huge hands from all accounts, and he could grab somebody by the throat. <laughs> and if he had to do that, that's what he would do, and he could do it really quick and then have the gun out, uh, pointing at the chest of the man that he grabbed by the throat. And so nobody got the drop on Bass Reeves. He was quicker than just about anybody out there. As you were researching, I mean, it really is incredible. And just there's, I, I only wish we had like a sort of greatest hits album of his, of his, uh, you know, top 10 arrests. But, you know, as you were researching, was there any one 
case of his that we know about that struck you as particularly noteworthy, whether it was for its drama, if there was kind of like a, you know, a big shootout, uh, or on the flip side, you know, more for its significance in restoring law and order to a troubled region. any one particular case that you really thought, wow, this is this is something special? I think the probably the the attempt to arrest, actually he did arrest a man named Jim Webb. Um, last called him Mexican. We don't think he actually was. Uh, he might have said that because people had a real problem with African Americans arresting white people. Uh, likely with the name Jim Webb, he probably was white. He was a ranch foreman for a Chickasaw rancher and had committed some crimes and had a warrant out. So Bass and his posse men went down to this ranch to make the arrest. And um, the um, Jim, the outlaw, was very suspicious of Bass. And so he kept a gun uh, in his hand the whole time that Bass was there trying to talk to him and get him to to drop his guard so he could arrest him. He finally just had to grab him by the throat. And when he looked away just briefly and he grabbed him and managed to get his gun out and and make the arrest at that time, took him to Fort Smith and Jim Webb escaped. And so he returns to the Chickasaw Nation, baskets the warrant again, goes back. At this time, he's he's aware of, of just what Jim Webb is. Jim was pretty slick himself and pretty fast with a gun and not afraid to use it. And so the second time he had to go back for him, um, Jim did fire at Bass Reef several times, came pretty close to killing him. He shot a button off of his coat, shot the bridle of his horse in two. So uh, it was close call, but Bass did, in fact, shoot and kill him. He lay dying, according to Bass. Bass went over to check on him and... Uh, he knew he was dying, Jim did, and he said, here, I want to give you my gun. You are the best sh- shootist I have ever f- come across or faced, and I want you to have my gun. And so he kept Jim Webb's gun as a trophy for having made that arrest. Uh, he came pretty close. That's probably one of the the, the moments in time when he came closest to himself um, being shot. Well, it strikes me, too, really good way to piss somebody off is to shoot at their horse. <laughs> Yes. Don't do that. Yes. Don't shoot it. Don't shoot a man's horse. <laughs> don't. Right. Don't do it. No. His, his horse or his dog. Yeah. Bass yeah. always had a dog with him too, and his, he yeah. prized his dog. So yeah. yeah, there is a statue of oh, Bass really? Reeves oh, in Fort we... Smith, and he has a dog. The dog and the horse are in the statue. So if you go to Fort Smith, the National Historic Site, you will see Bass Reeves on his horse heading into Indian Territory with his dog uh, and his horse. And his rifle, his Winchester oh, rifle. about that. Now, there is this extraordinary statistic in your book. A statistic is maybe the wrong word for it, but an extraordinary observation in your book that late in his life, um, after he retired from the marshals, you write that he became a police officer just in Muskogee, uh, sort of a little bit, a little bit quieter of a beat, so to speak. <laughs> but he was so so feared and respected as a lawman at the turn of the century, you know, we're really in kind of the early 1900s now, that in the town of Muskogee where he spent his last years, you write that there was, and I'm just going to say this the way that you write it because (laughs) I don't think there's any um, 
dressing up or dressing down that is required. There was no crime on his beat. <laughs> None. <laughs> <laughs> People did not even think about stealing a chicken, much no. less knocking up a hardware store or turning over a train. I mean, none. Exactly, exactly. And this is a story that circulated in Muskogee for years. You did not cross Bass Reeves. He was 70 years old at the time. He walked with a cane, and yet his reputation was so large that nobody wanted to mess with him. Nobody was going to tangle him. Nobody was going to risk him pulling out that gun and pointing it at them. And so everybody just minded their own business and minded their manners and did not consider com uh, committing a crime when Bass was on duty. I mean, it's kind of like... You know, with all of his skills of intuition and speed and, and his, uh, you know, his language proficiency and his sources on the inside. I mean, he could hear you thinking about stealing that chicken from halfway across town, right? He could. He could. They say he's, his, his marksmanship was remarkable. He could see so well. He could shoot at great distances. And I'm sure that he could spot anybody uh, out on the street when he was walking his beat. And he kept a beat. His beat was um, the the Black Business District. Uh, Tulsa is famous for its Black Business District of Greenwood, but Muskogee had an equally large and prosperous Black Business District, and that was uh, Bass's beat. And I'm sure that he could keep his eyes running to and throw up and down that street and knew everybody who was on the street, why they were there, whether they should have been there. And uh, I'm sure that everybody knew, Bass is watching you, you better behave. <laughs> it's like we need to rewrite the Christmas song, you know, to be about, you, you know, <laughs> yeah, naughty or nice. Santa. You know, you it's be, not Santa. <laughs> uh, better not cry, you better not shout. <laughs> right. uh, you know. Santa Bass is, is coming to town, you know, he's got his eye on you. So you write, you write that, uh, that Bass passed away in 1910, just a couple of years after Oklahoma actually did achieve formal statehood. I wanted to ask you, uh, what is his legacy today? This is a very large question, I understand, but, you know, he broke an enormous barrier as the first black deputy marshal west of the Mississippi, and he has had... Uh, a revival in recent years in film and TV depictions. Uh, I, I was so surprised to see him show up on the HBO series The Watchmen, which actually has a, a depiction of the Tulsa Massacre, which, uh, of course, is, you know, one of our nation's great tragedies. Um, but that reached a that reached an audience across the world, that show, right? And so here they had a sort of fictionalized, but not entirely fictionalized. I mean, it drew on on sort of aspects of his legend um, version of Bass's career as a lawman and thrust into global prominence, right? So what what would you say really is kind of his legacy at this moment? I would like to see his legacy be not just focused on the arrests he made or the shootouts that he took part in, but in this commitment that he had to law and order, to his sense of justice, uh, from all accounts that we have gleaned from people who told the stories and passed them down, he was this consummate gentleman. Uh, so I don't see him as being this hard-fisted, hard-drinking, 
uh, foul-mouthed womanizer that he probably will get portrayed by somebody sometime sooner or later. I think he was this quiet, gentle man. He was a gentle giant, and he managed to do his job without having to be without having to prove himself by being bad, you know, and, and acting out. I think he went about his job very quietly, very efficiently. Uh, he had a certain respect even for the outlaws he was arresting because he had himself been a fugitive, so he got that. He got what it was about. Uh, he just went about his job in, um, in a respectful way, and people respected him, and that's that you know the reputation he built was uh, not just that he could shoot you, but that he understood you, you know. And uh, people respected what he was and what he stood for. And if we could have that in law enforcement today, I think we'd be a lot better off as a nation, you know. Just be respectful. He sounds like just a consummate professional. And frankly, if I were breaking the law, I'm not sure what would be worse, uh, being shot or being understood. <laughs> exactly. You know, the, the story goes <laughs> that he wanted to be a preacher. He wanted to be a preacher. He asked if he could learn to read so he could read the Bible and was denied that opportunity. But he would preach to his prisoners as he was hauling them back to Fort Smith. You need to turn your life around. He would preach to them. And so I imagine that talking to was probably as bad as facing the gun. Yes, I'm sure he probably had a few men in tears. Oh, my heavens. <laughs> That is, um, that, that sounds excruciating pun, <laughs> pun not intended. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a church going man myself, but the thought of being preached at for, you know, I don't know, four straight days while I'm bound and cuffed in the back of a wagon heading to Fort Smith sounds like the worst possible punishment I could endure. <laughs> yes. No, don't let wow. it be Baz who arrests wow. me. I'll have to listen to a sermon. <laughs> 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 Anyone but Bass. Anyone but Bass. Well, let me ask you this. I have, I have just a couple more questions for you, Jeanita. This is this is so rich and detailed and, and marvelous. Um, uh, in lieu of an epilogue, uh, what I want to ask you about actually was your sources. Um, you know, often, so often, figures from the Wild West, if I can be a little cavalier with that term, you know, they they do grow more in legend than in fact. And the good sources that we have tend to dry up as fast as a creek bed underneath that Texas sun. For a figure in law enforcement, though, there must be more of a paper trail, right? I mean, we would have arrest records, we would have warrants, we would have letters or court documents or uh, commissions of some sort, right? So I am curious uh, for researchers out there, for students of, of Oklahoma history or people who are passionate about Bass Reeves um, who are maybe wanting to get to know his story a little bit better, and I will ask you about your uh, this society you know, it's devoted to him. But but let me ask you this. What do we have materially uh, as far as sources on Bass, and how do we make sense of it all? Well, Fort Smith, Fort Smith Court, of course, does have a lot of documentation of his arrest and the court cases, his testimony, because he often was called upon to testify. 
about the arrest or about what he knew of, of the crime. So we have all of that documentation. And he was very much written about in the newspapers. The Muskogee Phoenix covered him extensively. And then other newspapers from Chicago to New York to the Dallas Morning Times would also run those um articles from that they would pick up from Fort Smith or Van Buren or Muskogee. So he was read about all over the country during his lifetime. It was after his lifetime that he became forgotten. During his lifetime, there was a lot of, it might just be a little short paragraph, Bass Rees brought in 12 men today, uh, but they would report on who he brought in at the Fort Smith court uh, almost every four days, I assume. And um, he would uh, <clears throat> be very much uh, a known figure. And he's always referred to as the notable marshal or the prolific marshal or um, the stellar marshal. He's very much, you know, you wouldn't think an African-American and in this time frame would have gotten that much of a nod of respect, but he did uh, because of the job that he did. And so he was written about in a lot of newspapers. And you can, of course, uh, go online and find those um, newspaper stories. And then there have been a number of uh, biographies written about him. Art Burton's uh, Black Gun Silver Star is probably uh, considered the best of them, but there are others as well that are out there. So a lot to look into for folks who want mm -hmm. to get to know him better. There's resources available. Yes. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about the society that has been founded in honor of, of his legacy. Well, we're not technically a society. We're a group of enthusiasts, uh, volunteers. Uh, we work with the Three Rivers Museum, who has his monument. Uh, well, we call ourselves the Posse because we're not even technically a nonprofit organization. We're just a group of people passionate about bass and about telling his story. And so we, as the Posse, we, the Posse, put on a conference every July. It'll be coming up at the end of this month. And we invite people to come and learn more about Bass Reeves. Great. So we uh, have a group of reenactors. Not all of the Posse members are reenactors, and not all of the reenactors are Posse members. Uh, but we have a group of uh, reenactors who will uh, portray individuals who were contemporaries of Bass, who would have known him or known about him at least, and they will tell his story. I lead the tour. We could get on an air-conditioned bus, so you don't have to worry about sweating through uh, some some awful Oklahoma <laughs> July. And we get on a bus and we drive his beat. <laughs> when he was a police officer, we go to the location of the courthouse and the jail That's and great. where he lived and where he walked and where he went to church and all of these wonderful sites in downtown Muskogee that are connected to Bass. So if, if anyone's interested in attending this conference, we still have a few seats available on the bus. You can check our website, BassReevesConference.com, to get your tickets. And we would love to have you come. We would love to have you come, Benjamin, and, and say hello and learn a little bit more. You seem like you oh, might be interested be in, <laughs> in learning about Bass. He's the baddest cat in the yes, West. the baddest cat. That's his new <laughs> He nickname. is the baddest cat there was. He, I mean, I'm telling you, you just, you can't find anyone. I've, I've not found a, a single soul that has topped him, you know, as far as just, I, I swear, Janita, I am never going to even think about stealing a chicken ever again <laughs> for the rest of my mortal days, Bass because I know, be I know you. that even the spirit of Bass Reeves, <laughs> he will be watching you. He will be watching me. He's going to be right behind, you know, <laughs> looking over my shoulder. And I swear, <laughs> um, 
I just, uh, I think my, my days as an outlaw and a fugitive are done. Uh, <laughs> I think I am done. Um, one last question for you. Thank you. Thank you so very much for joining us and sharing such an extraordinary story. Uh, this has been such a pleasure. What is next for you, Janita? What do you have on uh, the desk at the moment? What kind of projects? I am currently writing my sixth novel. This is the story of uh, the Choctaws as they're leaving Mississippi and traveling west to Indian Territory and, and the hardships that they endure. And it's kind of a continuation. I write, and, I tend to write in series. I, I'm a kind of OCD. I like to write in a chronological order. And so my novels are all in chronological order. And so this is uh, taking place in the 1830s. I'm also. Um, collecting research right now. I may do a book called They Rode for Parker and just feature some of the marshals. I could do a little more on bass than I was able to do in uh, Oklahoma Originals and, of course, um, get some of the other men and women who were a part of the marshal service in this Wild West era. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, if there isn't already a biography of Isaac Parker or at least a fuller account of uh, the life and legacy and what he brought uh, to the territories at that time. And it sounds like it is absolutely warranted. So. Yes. Yes. I think there are, there's at least one biography of Parker and probably more than that. He was a very large figure in, in old West history. Um, it served for a long time on the bench, which is another record. I mean, most judges on the bench were there for a presidential term, and then they got booted out from the next president and appointed somebody else that he wanted, and he owed a favor too. So for Parker to have lasted as long as he did is also a remarkable record. Well, all the very best to you in the research and the writing, and I just cannot thank you enough for joining us and for teaching us all never to steal chickens or even think about it. <laughs> Don't even think about it. <laughs> thank you, Janita. We will see you soon. Thank you, Benjamin. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Our guest today has been Janita Mullins, author of Oklahoma Originals early heroes, heroines, villains, and vixens, published by the History Press. Join us next time as we wind down our summer series on great escapes with a doozy of a case. We're saving the best for last. We'll see you then. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Hey there, I'm James, host of Dakota Spotlight. We're back with a new season, You Killed Chris, A Friend's Fight for Justice. It's a chilling throwback to 1968. A college freshman, Christine Rothschild, is murdered on campus during her morning walk. Join us as we dive into this unsolved case and follow a friend's relentless pursuit of the truth all the way from the flower power era to today. Find You Killed Chris on your favorite app or at dakotaspotlight.com. <laughs>